Jonah chapter 3, that's where we are this morning. Grab your Bibles and turn there. Today we will see the grace of God revealed to us in this chapter. We're going to see him send Jonah to deliver his word to Nineveh, and we're going to see his mercy to a city that repents of their sins. As we look at this chapter this morning, I want us to consider three things. The powerful words of God, true repentance, and the great grace of God. So turn your attention to Jonah chapter 3 and follow along with me. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with a sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Let's pray. Father, you does not stand here. I, I just know I'm in need of you and your power to come through to, to make the power of your words known to these hearers. Would you encourage us in your word? Would you pierce us uh, to the heart that we might be like Nineveh and turn from our sins and depend on you? Amen. So after Jonah is uh, unceremoniously vomited out of a fish upon dry land, the Lord speaks to him again and gives him the same task he initially did in the beginning of Jonah 1. And it comes in two parts. The first part is go. He gets up and goes. And we don't have all the details of the story here. We don't know if the word of the Lord came immediately after Jonah stands up from the sandy beach, or if it comes after he cleans himself off, goes back to town, and is living his life. Uh, and it, just in case you're not well-versed in geography, which many of us aren't, especially of the ancient Near East, Jonah can't get spit right outside of Nineveh. Nineveh is like Kentucky. It's a landlocked area. So he had to walk some 500 miles all the way to Nineveh. And that's encouraging for us. 
because Jonah obeyed. And already, as we start to look at this grand display of repentance and grace, we can already see the Lord loves to give grace to those who turn from their sins and seek to obey God's word. So Jonah obeys his marching orders. He goes to Nineveh. He gets there. He enters the city, and he begins to fulfill his next task, which is to deliver the message that God gave to him. And this is all we have written of Jonah's message. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. That is all we have Were these the only words that Jonah said? Did he like, was he the energizer bunny walking through Nineveh saying, yet 40 days and Nineveh will repent? Or is this a summary of Jonah's sermons calling them to repent of their specific crimes and sins against a holy God to turn from their sins? Well, we don't know. Jonah doesn't tell us this in this book. And commentators have different beliefs, but at the end of the day, it's not that hot of a debate because what happens when God gives a word to a prophet and it brings it to the people he declares is that what God wills happens. And that brings me to really our first point. These are the powerful words of God. Look at verse five. After these words are declared, this is what we get. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. They believed God, and you should see through that statement the mighty power of God's words. Nineveh, in this text, is described again as an exceedingly great city. It even says it's three days' journey in breadth. And three days' journey is somewhere between 30 and 50 miles. That's a lot of territory. That's a lot of places to preach to, to get to the word. If you don't really understand miles from the way you think, 30 to 50 miles, 40 miles is downtown Main Street, Louisville, to downtown Main Street, Bardstown. That's about a 40-minute drive, 40 miles. It's helpful to think of Nineveh here as as a county seat, And if you don't know what I'm talking about, that's okay. But in Kentucky, we got counties, and there are many towns and counties, but there's one county seat where all the government buildings are. That's what's happening here. End of the day, Nineveh is a big place. In Jonah chapter 4, it says there's 120,000 people living here, not to mention all their cows and other things they got going on. So it's a place exceedingly great in geographical size and population, and in importance. But it doesn't matter how great Nineveh is because God's word is powerful enough to sweep across that entire area, the entire population, like a wildfire. The people of Nineveh are also exceedingly wicked. The book of Jonah doesn't show us all of those details, but the Bible World history and archaeological discoveries again and again tells us of the cruelty and violence that the Assyrians and the people of Nineveh were known for. Their records boast. They make boast and brags about lining the walls of their cities with the skins of their enemies. It talks about mutilating prisoners, those who they spare miss a lot of the parts of their face and their body and live 
sad, miserable, painful lives. Even what historians consider their most tame and gracious ruler speaks of spilling so much blood that he has to wade his horse through it like wading through a river. Nahum 3.1, which is another minor prophet, describes Nineveh like this. He calls them a bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to their prey. And the king of Nineveh later in this chapter even talks about how evil this people is. He calls them to turn from the violence that is in their own hands. This is a wicked people and if anything about their claims is even partially true, they would cause us to blanch and tremble if they were our enemies or even just our neighbors. When you turn on the news and you see a fraction of the amount of violence that's described there, whether it's a mass shooting, a murder, sex trafficking, other tragic crimes, you are rightly disgusted angered, and even brought to tears when you see that little ones and innocents are being oppressed and murdered all across this country and this world. But it doesn't matter how wicked Nineveh is, because the word of God is powerful enough to pierce their hard hearts, their seared conscience, and not just of one person here. We're not talking about one prisoner or one murderer who, is just, who has received and understood the grace of God. We're talking about a whole city repenting. We're talking about the words of God that have the power to transform cultures, not just individuals. And this shouldn't surprise you if you've been reading the Bible for more than a day or two. The Bible consistently gives testament to the power of God's words. If you open it up to the beginning, it says, God said, let there be light, and light exists. He says, Sea, sky, plants, animals, man, woman, and these things exist. Those are powerful words. Try it with me. Everyone say, light. They're already on. You did nothing. (laughs) Your words don't have that kind of power. Jeremiah 23, 29 describes the word of God's like fire, like a hammer that breaks rock in pieces. How many kids are in karate or adults? Can you break a board? Yes, no, maybe. Someone out here can break a board. Can you break a rock with the words of your power? No, but God's words can Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is living and active, that it's sharper than a double-edged sword, and that it pierces the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, and discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In Isaiah 55, the word of God is described like rain and snow that comes from heaven and does not return there, but to water the earth. It's a word that goes out from God's mouth and it doesn't return empty. It accomplishes exactly what it intends and succeeds in all of the tasks that God gives it because he speaks with a great power and authority as a sovereign of all things. Yet when we read or hear of wonderful events that happened to Nineveh when they believed, or even not that far away in Asbury when there was rumblings of a revival, we can be full of doubt. 
full of pessimism? We'll see. We'll see about that. Or even unbelief. And reading uh, Jonah 3, reading about Nineveh, you might be like, oh, yeah, that's good. But you might not really believe the statement that Nineveh believed God. And because I want you to grasp the magnitude of the power of God's words, both in the book of Jonah and in your lives today, I want to show you that there is true conversion here. You know that song, O Church Arise? Well, there's a line that says, uh, there are saints of old lining the way, telling triumphs of his grace. Well, in that line, there's 120 odd thousand Ninevites declaring of God's grace of this bearded man who came and warned them of judgment. And that was a gracious God whose words wrought them to the heart. Why can we trust that Nineveh is really saved? Because beloved, or sinner in here, all it takes is to believe. Back in Genesis 15, 6, we get a really similar statement to verse 5 here. It says, and Abram believed the Lord, and he, God, counted it to him as righteousness. If you've read Genesis, Abram wasn't this super godly man. He was a stranger in a strange land that God decides to speak to and says, get up and go. I'm going to make you and your barren wife a people, and I'm going to give you a land, and you're going to bless the nations. And Abram believes him, and that's his righteousness. And Abraham is also described as the father of all who believe. That's because you and me and all the people of Nineveh follow his example when we believe God's words and walk according to them. Not because of works we do, but because of what God chooses to do for us. And that's a great theological argument. That's a great historical argument. But here's a trump card. Jesus, in the Gospels, says this about Nineveh. He says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they, speaking of Nineveh, repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The damned don't get to judge the damned. Only those who are righteous, only those who are raised again to newness of life will participate under the authority and reign of Christ to judge when he returns. And in case you didn't know, the Bible speaks much of you judging the world and the angels and those as a part of the body of Christ. So from Jonah's day to ours, God's words have not lost a fraction of their power. Did you know that? They have the same power to bring the dead to life today. And if you're believing in God this morning and repenting and walking in righteousness and in the good works prepared for you, you have experienced that power. But there are a lot of times we don't believe it. Do you believe that the power of God's words can transform those that are homeless, addicted, and mentally ill that you very likely passed on your way to church this morning? Do you know that it has the power to change those who passionately advocate for the murder of children or for the perversion of gender and sex and all the things that are evil in this world? Do you believe that the word of God, simply speaking the word of God to our neighbors here in the Sobro community, to your coworkers, to your lost 
friends and family can actually have a change in their life? Oh, you of little faith. If this is you and you struggle to believe, and I'm gonna confess to you, many of those situations, I'm like, how is that gonna happen? Well, follow the example of the centurion in the gospels who cry out, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Do things that I cannot fathom or imagine. Follow the example of our prayer guys that says we're gonna pray for the impossible things to happen across this world. If we believe, truly believe, that God's words are this powerful, we will do a few things. And the first one is that we should embrace our commission and responsibility to proclaim these words wherever we might be. And guess what, when you declare them, you don't have to have great knowledge. You don't have to have great uh, persuasive power because you can trust these words to do the work Again, we don't know much about Jonah's message, but it doesn't seem like he spends, you know, he had, he had 40 days, so you can't give too much to people in 40 days, especially 120,000 people. And the text seems to say that these are people repeating the words to one another that's yielding truth. You can trust God's words. You can simply expose sin by saying that is not how we are created to act, but there's one who came to die for people just like you. And you can trust that God can use the truth and his word and his spirit to save sinners. You don't got to do it yourself, and that's good news because you can't. And if we believe that the word of God has this power to do this, you're going to keep doing what you've been doing for a decade or more, and that's raising up men to faithfully go out and pastor, to, to exposit the Lord's words. You're going to send out more church planters, just like me, year after year. You're going to send more people to translate and to take the gospel to the nations, year after year, because you know that the word of God has power, and that when we send people to proclaim it, it will come with power and save sinners. But make no mistake, I, I realize how hard this is. I've been here nearly a decade, and now, it's, now I'm the one who's making it hard for you to send out more. But this is a costly work, but it's a great work. Because you, Emmanuel, all those who ain't going nowhere, unless, well, you can always come, it's never too late, just so you know. <laughs> But most of you won't come, and that's okay, because you're going to keep doing this costly work of sending those who can rightly divide God's truth and care to share it with the world. That is good. Don't grow weary of that work. Now, you might be in a discouraging season of life, or back from overseas, back from a discouraging season of ministry. You can go, Joshua, we're doing all these things, but I'm not seeing God's power at work people aren't being saved. I've shared the gospel a dozen times with my family and coworkers. I read the Bible with them every week and nothing's happening. Let me remind you of something. If you learned one thing from the book of Jonah, I hope you learned more than one, but if you learned one thing, I want you to understand that salvation belongs to the Lord. You're responsible for taking things out. You're going to be like Paul who scatters seeds and there's going to be an Apollos after you who's going to water them. 
but sometimes the crops still don't grow. Do you know why? Because God gives the growth. Go start a garden, because this will help you understand this truth that you can rely on God's power to do exactly what he wants to do when he wants to do it. And when you're discouraged of not seeing fruit, can I remind you, you have access to the throne of grace, and you can take all your petitions there and plead for him to work. And if we learned something last, last sermon in Jonah 2 is he loves to hear and answer the desperate cries of his people. And finally, you should avail yourself the power of God's word. It's powerful to save sinners, but it's also the same power found there that saved you, sustains you day by day, renews you day by day. And you are at an unprecedented point in history where you have an unparalleled access to God's word, especially in this country. You can read it in dozens of different translations. If you can read different languages, you can read it in as many languages as you can care to learn. You can listen to someone read it next to you or pull out your little smartphone device and listen to someone else read it to you. Sometimes it can even be set to music. And then you have songs and music and really generation upon generation of songs that are full of God's words. Yet, how many, how many days have you let go by since the last time you picked up that word and read it? Last time you meditated on it or sought to memorize it or spoke of it. Because those are the words that saved you and those are the words that will keep conforming you to the image of your king. Avail yourself of those words. Run to them. You got all the power of creation at your fingertips. Be renewed. The powerful words of God will continue to change your life. And this brings me to my second point, which is true repentance. What is repentance? Our doctrinal statement has a really cool definition of it. It's long. Let me simple it down for you. Uh, there are three things that mark true repentance. And it is when someone understands the evil of their sin when someone humbles themselves for their sin, and then when someone turns from their sin to walk in a worthy manner. Three parts, understand the evil of sin, humble yourself because of sin, and then turn from the sin to walk in a worthy manner. And you get to see this on wonderful display in the Ninevites in this chapter. First, the people of Nineveh understand the evil of their sin. You can see this evidence start in verse 5, because the people of Nineveh believed God. And there are a few things packed into that statement. It shows that the Ninevites accepted that Jonah was a prophet and actually brought words from God. It shows that they have an understanding that the God that calls out judgment against them has the power to overthrow them, has the authority to condemn them for their actions. If they didn't believe God was this powerful, they would have no reason to repent. 
They had had nothing to be afraid of and nothing to understand of why they were evil. And we don't see any evidence that the people of Nineveh argue or scoff at him. They believe him. And that shows that they understand that they are guilty of wickedness and wholly deserving of the judgment that is coming to them in a matter of days. Later down in verse 8, the king seems to make this even more explicit when he calls for everyone to turn from their evil ways. That is admission. We have done things that are wrong. Second, the people of Nineveh humble themselves because of their sins. And we see this as they call for a fast, as they put on sackcloth, both the greatest and the least of them. Now, fasting and sackcloth are not practices that we are very familiar with today, but they are practices that are meant to show contrition. Fasting, not eating food, is the body's way of praying. You are voluntarily emptying yourself to make yourself miserable so that God might have mercy. It's as if your belly is crying out with your mouth, see how empty I am. I have no strength. I need a helper. See my need and have mercy. And wearing sackcloth is a similar thing. But instead of your inward belly crying out, it's the scratchiness of your skin, the discomfort of your body, the chafing sores from scratching back and forth that are calling out, I'm but a beggar, have mercy on me. And these actions, which are surely accompanied by prayer, these are Nineveh humbling themselves before the mighty hand of God. To be clear, not eating and wearing scratchy clothes are not parts of some equation that result in the forgiveness of sins. You don't have to do these things for the Lord to pour out his mercy. But these are actions that, that Nineveh takes as visible body expressions that are meant to display the state of their heart. And they have the hearts that are broken and contrite. They have humble hearts. And this humble heart is what pleases God. Not how long you can go without food, not how much physical discomfort you can bear, but the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. That is what King David cried out when he was repenting of his sins. So in Nineveh's actions of humiliation, we should see the posture of their hearts that humbles themselves because of their sin. And as we continue in this text, we get, to see, uh, we get to see what happens when the word of God reaches the king. And in that, we see the great example that this king has of humility and even more of the actions that Nineveh takes to really radically display how humble and contrite they are for their sin. If you keep reading down in the text, the word of the king, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he, check this out, the greatest of them, stands up from his throne, removes his robe, puts on sackcloth, and then sits in ashes. Man, if only we had rulers who would be convicted of sin like that and humble themselves instead of hedging their bets and covering up corruption. 
Not that every ruler is corrupt, but we've had time and time again in our nation and in the history of the world corrupt rulers who don't humble themselves before God. But then this king, he not only humbles himself, he takes all of this a step further. He doesn't just join in personally, he makes an official proclamation that regulates and codifies the grassroots movements of this fast and this repentance of Nineveh. And he calls for perhaps the most radical citywide fast and repentance ever recorded in human history. In his proclamation, he says, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. That's no food or no water. The majority of fasts that we read about in Scripture and that we participate in today happen to be with no food. Because we need water to stay alive. We're made up of mostly water. But the king calls for none of it. And it's not just the people. He says, don't feed your cows, don't feed your goats, don't feed your sheep, and don't give them any water. Why does he got to go bring cows and goats into this? That sounds really weird. And it is very foreign to our sensibilities. Most of you have never owned livestock. You go to Kroger or Costco or Aldi, and if those aren't around, I, I bet you there's a Dollar General right around the corner. You got dogs, you got cats, you got other pets, but imagining not feeding them and joining with your fast doesn't have the same effect. Livestock, actually living bodies, both slaves and livestock, were the basic building blocks of the economy of the ancient Near East. So this king is rightfully understanding that the one who proclaims the curse is also the one with the power of blessing. And they're holding out all their wealth, everything they have that has made them great, and says, we'll lose it all for the sake of mercy. We'll put it all in front of you. And you can imagine that as their belly rumbles, as their skin is scratchy, and as they're constantly hearing the bellows and the bleats of cows and goats, that all these things are reminding them to cry out mightily to the Lord for mercy. And that's both man and beast, all to cry out for mercy. Everything about their situation is reminding them of their need and of the impending judgment that's coming for them. And this calling out for mercy, this debasing their bodies and the bodies of their creatures is all meant to show us the humbleness of their hearts. They don't have great instruction in the ways of the Lord. They're doing everything they can do to show this God that they are serious about the repentance of their sin. And then finally, we see that the people of Nineveh turn from their sins. And this is, we see this really in the call that the king gives to Nineveh in verse 8. He says, let everyone, every individual, turn from his evil and their violence in his hands. It's not enough just to have a law on the books that says don't do this. You have to actually change. This is a king's call for every individual to turn away from their particular sins. And as we can see, it looks like many of their sins have to do with violence and oppression of both one another and their neighbors. And the actions of Nineveh in this chapter give you a great 
model of repentance. The same three things you should compare your repentance to. Do you see and understand the evil of your sins with the same clarity that the city of Nineveh does? They're calling them out publicly. And I'm not just talking about the sins that you used to have before you were saved. I'm talking about the sins that are day by day in your life as you war against the flesh that's crucified but still having death throes within you. I'm talking about the harsh words you speak to your wife, to your husband, to your children, instead of being kind and patient and gentle in the way the Lord has called you to be. I'm talking about the unreasonable and exacerbating expectations you put on your children, on your spouse, on your employees, or on your boss. Failing to be self-controlled when it comes to enjoying God's good gift, whether that be good food, good wine, or entertainment. Or it may be failing to have self-control and not treating the opposite sex as something with dignity and purity and giving yourself over to lustful thoughts, to actual sexual morality, to pornography, and to adultery. You should beware becoming apathetic to your sins. You should not be content to sin. I know there's such thing as sins that cling closely, but that is not what you were called to do. Understand your sin is evil. You've been saved from it, not for it. Also beware of minimizing your sin. Oh, I was just sharing my concerns of this brother or sister. The Bible calls that gossip. You should too. Oh, I was just hungry a little, you know, just a little irritable. Uh, No, you spoke a word in anger. Call sin what it is. That will help you see the evil of it. Don't soft pedal it and soft apologize. Repent by admitting the evil of your actions. And do you know how you'll grow in understanding the evil of your sin? It's by availing yourself of the means of grace that God has given you, by reading his word, by meditating on it, by coming here on the Lord's Day each Sunday to hear it preached, by going to prayer rooms and hearing people confess sin. It might be joining a GCG, a D group, or just having real conversations around the dinner table, talking about the trials and the joys in your life. And if you're immersed in the means of grace that God has given his people, you're going to see the beauty of God which means you're going to see more and more the evil of sin. Avail yourself not only of his word, but of all the means of grace that he has given you so that you might not become apathetic and content in your sin. Then how are you humbling yourself for your sin? Ain't none of you wearing sackcloth right now. We're not supposed to really speak when we're fasting. And often... It's going to be as plain as a simple and open confession of your sin. One of the proudest things that you can do is to hide your sin from the people that you've made a covenant with, to walk in holiness and obey the Lord. And it's easy to hide sin. You just don't talk about it. And then you're miserable. And then you're proud. It's also easy to believe these lies. Because there's an adversary and a whole host of enemies that whisper in your ear and at night, ain't no one else struggles with this. 
If you tell them that you did that, they're not going to be your friend anymore. But those are lies that come from the pits of hell, and that's where they're going to go again one day. Because the Bible, the truth, says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. Walk in humbleness. Our faith is based on being able to not do it ourselves. It's not a surprise when we confess to one another that we are stumbling. And then there's a great grace that they encourage you and help you to turn and flee from those sins. And the final thing, like, are you actually forsaking your sins? You can take the humbling yourself and be a really good confessor of sin, but being a really good confessor of sin doesn't mean you're going to be a great repenter. Because the three elements of repentance are understanding the evil, humbling yourself for that evil, and then turning from that evil. The fruit of repentance is a changed life. There is no such thing as a sin that clings so closely that a believer indwelt by the Spirit cannot put it to death. Christ triumph over sin and death in his resurrection has abolished sin's hold on you. You're not under its dominion. Romans 6 says its chains have been broken and now you're chained to a righteous one who has indwelt you with his spirit. You are a free believer. Walk in the freedom and the power that you have been given. But in all of this, we must remember to be patient with one another. Sanctification is a gradual process. You don't change always overnight. There are many sins that you should change overnight from, and many of you have, but change is a gradual process. And we should be quick, as Jeff is always reminding us, to preach the gospel to one another, to show each other the grace of God in our lives and the fruit that we do bear. And this really brings me to my third point. We see in this text the great grace of God. Look down to verse 9. The king, the end of his little section, says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so we may not perish. Despite his decree, despite the posture of his heart, he is not certain that God will respond to him favorably. This king Hope is like you're in a dark room grasping for the light. You can't see a thing, but you sure hope the light switch is there. It's like Velma in Scooby-Doo looking for her glasses, but she can't see. The king is just like this. All he knows is it's dark, that there's an anger burning against him. And all he knows is this is all he can do, but spread out his arms and hope with the mercy of God. Unless that God changes his mind, he knows with a certainty him and his people will be destroyed. And despite his ignorance in the ways and the characters of God, this man arrives at a remarkably precise theological conclusion. This isn't the first time a Gentile has arrived at this conclusion in the book of Jonah. The captain says something very similar in book one. He goes, who knows? If you pray to your God, maybe we'll be saved from the storm. And it's really the same truth revealed in the captain's heart and in the king's heart that Jonah finally comes 
to believe and declare at the end of his prayer that salvation belongs to the Lord. This is one of the main themes of Jonah. The Lord is sovereign. It is his prerogative exactly who he will show mercy on and who he will pour out his fierce anger. And just like Jonah in the chapter before this, Nineveh experiences the great grace of God. Because when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The great grace of God is this. When people repent, he is so often willing to relent. Why does he do this? Why does God relent when people repent? Because we see in many biblical stories the incredible and frightening displays of God bringing justice to the wicked. Do you remember Noah in the flood? How just a handful of people and an ark full of animals are spared, but the rest of the earth drowns under the waters of his judgment? Do you remember Sodom and Gomorrah, a wicked city who he rains fire and brimstone down on? He really is faithful to judge according to his great justice. But God doesn't delight in destruction. The Bible teaches us in Ezekiel that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Although there are many rebels against his law, these wicked men and women are still created beings who he made, who bear his image, and who are created to love and be loved by God. So it makes a lot of sense when God takes pleasure when the wicked turn back from their evil ways. And why? He's made declarations for a moment such as this. You can look at Jeremiah 18:8 later, that he says, when wicked nations turn from their sins after I call them out on it, I will relent, because he delights when people turn from their sin. That answers why God loves his creation, but what about how? How can God do this? How can he overlook the sins of Nineveh and of all the other wicked people in the world? We know that he is holy. He cannot ignore sin. His fierce anger, his wrath, and his judgment against sin must be satisfied or he isn't such a holy, perfect God. And he is. And the great grace of God for all sinners is this. It has been once and for all satisfied on the cross of Jesus Christ. The great grace of God is fully displayed to us in Jesus Christ. Romans says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus was the plan and the means of grace from before the foundation of this earth. God could forbear the sins of Adam and Eve, all the errors and sins of the patriarchs, 
all of the stumbling and idolatry of Israel, of the wicked nation of Nineveh, and of you and me, because Jesus was coming to be the once-for-all sacrifice to be freely offered to you that all those who believe in him might not perish, but have eternal life. That's good news. And you should say amen, because it is. And that fierce anger that burned against Nineveh burns against every single city and every single person who have not bent the knee and repented of their sin, putting faith in Jesus. If you have not turned from your sins, you must hear this. Judgment is coming. Nineveh had 40 days, but we don't know the day or the hour when our king will return to call his people home and judge this earth. But we do know this that every day and every hour that our Lord tarries, he is being patient towards you, O sinner. And he delights not to destroy you, but that you would reach repentance and turn from your evil ways. And the same great grace that God showed to Nineveh is the same great grace he will show to you. So won't you come to him? Won't you ask someone around you right now, or right after this, tell me more about this Jesus. How can I be freed from my sin? Won't you pick up this Bible and experience what Nineveh experienced when they saw and heard the words of God proclaimed to him, to them? Encounter him and his word, because it's powerful enough to change your life forever. And oh, believer, The same grace of God that first saved you is the same grace that sustains you day in and day out until he returns or he calls you home. You got to lean on that grace. You got to trust in that grace. You got to praise him for that grace. And if you really love that grace, you got to speak of that grace. It's hard to experience that grace and remain silent. So you should fight your fear. You should fight any temptation to apathy or, as we'll learn next week, hatred of the wicked to share that grace because it's good and it's free. And man, you know more about it than Nineveh did. You have the word more in full than the prophets and the angels even knew. For time passed until Jesus came and revealed it all. Speak of it. Proclaim it. Let's see God's word take Louisville by a storm, Kentucky by a storm, and spread his kingdom throughout the ends of his earth. Let's pray. Father, Would you use your words, the simple ones found in Jonah, to do a great work in this people? Would you help us to really give praise for your grace, but to repent of our sins and to love all the things and truth that you have revealed to us? It's the name of your son that I pray. Amen.